If you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, and we're actually we're starting a new series. It's called The King is Coming. And this is going to be uh, going through the first four chapters of Matthew, culminating in the revelation of Jesus' ministry on Christmas Day. Okay, and so we're going to be looking at Matthew's theme. He's telling us that the king is coming. And so let's start that series in Matthew chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 through 17. Friends, listen. This is the word of Christ. And let me say before I start reading that what we're going to be reading is a genealogy. Okay? Genealogy is filled with names. And what you want to listen for are titles and summaries of genealogies. Those indicate sort of what the purpose of them is. And then as the genealogy is read, you want to listen for the things that break the rhythm. Okay, just a little bit of a lesson on how do you read genealogies in the Bible. I'll talk a little bit more about it here in a second. But I just want you to listen for things as we read. This is Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers." at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. (laughs) So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of Christ. Okay, so people say, all right, I'm going to read the Bible. 
I want to know about this Jesus person. And so they open the Bible and they think, all right, Genesis, no, 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 no. I, I, want, the, I want Jesus. Okay, so they turn to the first page of the New Testament because they're so excited, right? They're so in, inspired to read the Bible. And what do they find? This is the first page of the New Testament. They find a genealogy, a bunch of names. And if you're like me, I remember the first time reading this, I thought, man, I'm lost and I've just started. What is this about? What's up with all these names? Come on. This is a bunch of, like, this is just confusing. I don't know where I'm going. Well, genealogies are really, really important in the Bible. Okay, in the Bible. Back in the culture of that day, genealogies were super important because your family history determined where you lived, actually. It also determined whether you could own property. Uh, If you wanted to be a priest or a king, you had to have proof that you were from a particular family or families. So the question becomes then, how do we read these? Now that genealogy typically are left for Mormons or folks that are interested in just pursuing their own family history. There's been a resurgence of that. Um, How do you read these when you come across one in the Bible? I've already kind of indicated the things that you look for. You first, and so this, there's 54 chapters in the Old Testament alone where genealogies are found, right? So what do you do? If you're reading along, what do you do when you come across a genealogy, okay? The first thing you do is you look for either a title or a summary, at the beginning or the end, because that can give you a hint as to why the genealogy is here and what it's meant to accomplish. Okay, we actually have that. Verse 1 is the title, and then verse 17 is the summary. Okay, we'll talk about those a little bit later. And then the second thing is you want to look for breaks in the rhythm. Okay, that's what I did when I read it. You know, there's clearly a rhythm and you get into a cadence, right? And you kind of, and you get to it and you could imagine, because this is what would happen, parents would be reciting these things to their kids and the kids would sort of get into it, you know, and they start moving with the timing and they start, and then all of a sudden something happens, you know, by Tamar. And you think, whoa, wait, hold on. That's, that broke the pattern. It breaks the pattern. So you want to look for breaks in the pattern because there the author is intentionally breaking up the cadence because he wants you to stumble so that you'll stop and you'll think okay, about what is being said there and, and how the pattern is being broken. And so when you do that with a genealogy, when you do it with this genealogy, you find that it's so much more than just a list of names. Okay? Now, you might not care about this list of names, but do you care about abuse that happens in a family? Maybe you've experienced family abuse, physical, sexual, emotional, verbal, maybe somebody that you know. Do you care about feeling pressure by people to do things that you don't want to do? maybe in the workplace, maybe in your family, you feel this pressure, you care about that. Do you care about taking care of your aging parents? Or do you ever feel like you're aimless in life? Like you're wandering and you really don't know what's coming next or if anything's ever going to change? 
this genealogy, believe it or not, speaks to every one of those things. Matthew has crafted this genealogy. It's not exhaustive. He doesn't, there's other genealogies in the Bible where you can see that there's names that he's chosen to leave out because he's structuring this, and we'll look at why um, toward the end. But these names, they're like a parade. Okay? They're like a parade that is filled with stories. Some are good, some are bad, some are ugly. And each one of these names is designed to build in us a, uh, an anticipation of what is coming at the end. Because what's coming at the end is Jesus, who is called Christ. And so there are, Matthew even gives us the outline of his own, his own summary right there at the bottom. And so those are going to be the three points that we look at. We're going to look at Abraham, we're going to look at David, and then we're going to look at Babylon. Okay? So that's what we're going to look at. And so first, we're going to look at Abraham. Abraham reveals to us God's covenant promises. So if you want to write something on that line, Abraham is about God's covenant promises. This is verses 1 through 6. Now God's covenant was renewed and restarted with Abraham. Okay, and we've seen this, right? Just in the last month or so, um, we did a series. We preached through Abraham this fall. We saw that Abraham was blessed by God and called to be a blessing to, uh, to the world. In Genesis 12 through 22, it shows that God chose Abraham and made a covenant with him. He bound himself by, by his promises to bless Abraham and then to make Abraham a blessing so that he would bless all the nations of the earth. Do you remember this? Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so you think about the blessings of God. I mean, in some ways, if you were to write them all down, the the world wouldn't be able to contain the books. If you were going to think about the blessings of God. But just in summary, to be blessed by God is to have a relationship with him. To know that the God who made the universe, who made the world, who made you and the people around you is in your corner. He's on your side. To know God's love and kindness. To experience God's forgiveness. To have God as your powerful and loving father. A God who can right the wrongs in your life. To have confidence and assurance that comes from that relationship. And then to be experiencing growth, personal growth in your life is a blessing from God. Having a joy in you that lasts no matter what the circumstances. Just scratching the surface of the blessings of God. Now God's covenant promises pass through Abraham's family line. Right? They went from Abraham to Isaac, and then Isaac to Jacob, and then Jacob to his 12 sons, one of whom was Judah, and then to the nation of Israel, right? because they were the family of Abraham. And in the Old Testament, if you trusted in Abraham's God, then you became a child of Abraham. 
You became part of Abraham's family. And then you received all the blessings and the promises that were given to Abraham. Okay? And these blessings are real. These blessings are real and they powerfully impact lives. Okay, Matthew reminds us of the power of God's blessings in the first six verses of this genealogy. Because again, we saw how when things disrupt the rhythm of the cadence, attention is being brought to it. So just look at verse 3. It starts there. Isaac, and you see the, the verse numbers are superscripted um, there. So you see verse 3, it says, and, uh, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. So that's kind of unusual. What Matthew does here with his genealogy is unusual. It's unorthodox for his day because uh, in that he includes women in his genealogy. Okay, that wasn't done. And he does it again twice in verse 5. If you skip down to number 11 there, it says, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. You just didn't do that. In the culture that Matthew was writing to, women couldn't inherit. They couldn't pass anything down. And so you'd never include them in a genealogy. And yet... The Bible has always, 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 hear this. The Bible has always thought more highly of women than the culture around them. Okay? Even when the church is not acting that way, even when the church is oppressing women and demeaning women, the Bible has always thought more highly of women than the rest of the culture. And this is a good example of that. You'll see Jesus doing this in the rest of his gospel. But these three women... Okay, Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. These are women of awful backgrounds. These are women who have a story to tell that brings out the ugliness of humanity. But their faith in God, in the midst of their tribulations, in the midst of their suffering, enabled them to experience God's blessings and live a life that was blessed to be a blessing. Okay, Matthew wants us to stop and remember that as we're thinking about the genealogy of Jesus. Tamar, in Genesis 38, was a young widow who was abused by her father-in-law. Rahab, she wasn't even part of God's family. Okay, she was a prostitute, but she learned to trust God. And Rahab gave up, she gave up her prostitution. Her faith in God was so strong that she hid God's spies. God's spies um, in the book of Joshua. And she stood up to political pressure that was asking her, where are they? We want them. We want to kill them. She hid them, lied about it, and stood up to political pressure, risking her life to protect God's people. And then Ruth. Ruth also, she wasn't part of God's family either, but she learned to have faith in God and she trusted God so much that she, um, she returned to the promised land in order to care for her mother-in-law. Like her mother-in-law said, look, I am cursed. There is no reason why you should hang out with me. Go your way and seek out blessing. And she said, no, 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 I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to care 
for you. It was her faith that drove her to do that. And so it's the faith of these women that show God's power to change lives, to overcome adversity. And they were rewarded in their lives, but they were also rewarded with the blessing of being part of the genealogy of the Messiah. is how God works. You trust him and he shows up in the midst of your adversity, in the midst of your difficulties. And sometimes in ways that are completely unexplainable, sometimes in explainable ways, you're able to overcome. You're able to get through. You're able to continue to hang on. And God shows up. So with this beginning part, dealing with Abraham, there's an interesting passage in the book of Galatians talking about Abraham and his children. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, this is what it says. It says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. So the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, they weren't referring necessarily to all of his descendants. Some of, some of the, I mean, the blessings came to all of Abraham's descendants, but there were particular promises that were made about how Abraham's seed was going to bless all the nations of the earth. And what Galatians 3 tells us is that there was going to be a single seed, a single offspring of Abraham who would bring about the fulfillment of God's promises. And Galatians tells us that that offspring is Jesus, who is called Christ. And so we see that the promises of God come true through Abraham's family, and they are powerful enough to change your life. So that's Abraham. Our second point after God's covenant promises, our second point with David is God's covenant call. God's covenant call. And this is verses 6 through 11. And there we see the list of 14 from David all the way to the deportation to Babylon. Um, David is a key figure, right? Because in David, something huge happens. We are tripped up in our reading in verse 6 where it says, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. The king. David was the first king of Israel that God chose. Okay? God chose David and established David and his kingship in Israel. And so in David, the family of Abraham becomes royal. There is a progression that happens in the life of David is that the family of Abraham becomes royal. Now, having a king was significant because prior to this, in the story of the Old Testament, God was king of his people. In fact, initially, when the people asked for a king, it was demonstrated that they were rejecting God as their king. Not a good thing to do. But with God, for God to choose a king, for God to choose David and say, this is a king after my own heart, You can read about it in 1 Samuel. Um, When God does that, it means that God was establishing that now a human being could rule over his people. 
Okay, it's as though he's saying, look, you have learned to follow me. My design and my desire is that you all would become kings and rulers that reflect me. But up until this point in time, you're not ready. But with David, it's as though God is saying, my people are now mature enough to be able to do this. And it's significant because, again, the king is going to lead all the people. The king will hopefully be called. The king will lead God's people the way God would lead them. To love the people, to serve the people, right? To care for the people the way God cares. And the king would lead all the people either for good or for bad. And then God makes a covenant with David, okay? And so we see that not God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. God makes a covenant with, Sam, uh, with, with David um, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Listen to this. It's 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 16. It says, God speaking to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So did you hear that offspring from your body? Again, it's the same thing, right? It's, it's about the family. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So this is God's covenant promise to David. And in that covenant promise that David's throne would last forever, that David would have, again, an offspring from his body who would rise up and rule forever. In that covenant promise, there's a call. There's a call, and that call is that the king is called to represent God. Okay, we just said this a second ago. God was saying, I want human beings to lead my people the way I do. Lead them, care for them, serve them, and bless them. And so God was blessing the king and then calling the king to be a blessing to his people. Now, what you see in the story of the Old Testament is that David did this to some measure. He was successful to some degree, and there was glory in his reign. And in Solomon's reign, Solomon, who came up after David, there was even more glory. The story of Solomon's kingdom, um, whom David begot by the wife of Uriah, it, it culminates in 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, you see this is the zenith, the apex, the high point of Israel's kingdom. Solomon there, he says, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their hearts, who have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand. You have fulfilled it this day. And then he goes on to say, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel 
according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. So Solomon's saying, you can, you can trust God. God can be trusted. His word comes true. And so, again, you had this glorious reign at the beginning of Solomon's days. The bummer is it didn't stay that way. It didn't stay that way. As Israel got more and more powerful, the kings became consumed with power and wealth and women. Not too much different from our day and age. They stopped. They stopped following God. And they led the people to do the same. And in the Old Testament, among the kings, this, this decline began actually with David. It began with David's sins of adultery, conspiracy, murder, and then a cover-up. I mean, this is all with Bathsheba, who is the wife of Uriah. Listed here in verse 6, David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. Now, God forgave David, and actually he blessed Bathsheba. The child that they conceived was Solomon, who became part of David's royal line. This, friends, like this shows the amazing abundance of God's grace. No matter what you've done, God is willing to forgive and to let you start over. He's willing to give you a fresh start. No matter where you are, no matter what has happened. Now again, the bummer is that this episode of adultery and conspiracy and murder, abusing kingly power really is what it's about. Um, this infected the family line of David. Okay, and the kings, it spread to most of the kings who descended from him. Yeah, though there were some kings who were good, most of them were evil rulers, they were tyrants, and they led the people away from God. We see that the kingdom, if you read again, just telling the story, as you read through these kings after Solomon, the kingdom of God was ravaged by civil war and it ended up being divided and split during the generation after Solomon. And then everything went downhill from there. Um, These kings led Israel into a story of suffering and being conquered. Um, Ultimately, it led to being deported being deported. The nation of Babylon attacked Israel, destroyed the people, destroyed God's temple, and the folks who were left over, they took as captives and led them back to Babylon as exiles. And so, what we see here is that the kings were called in the covenant to represent God, but they failed. They failed. They were consumed with themselves. They led the nation to ignore God. They lost God's blessings in their lives because they ignored him. And it led them to Babylon. This is the sad story that continues today when we ignore God in our lives. When we don't allow God into areas of our lives. If you cut yourself off from God, you cut yourself off from all that God is. 
from his love, from his grace, from his patience, and you lose those things, you find they, they, they begin to dry up in your heart and there's no returning. There's nothing that's pouring back into your heart. And so the people, the whole nation, they turn from God, they refuse to repent, and so the chastening of God led Israel into the next phase of their history, which is the deportation to Babylon. And that's the third point. Our third point is Babylon, where we see God's covenant judgment and restoration. His covenant judgment and restoration. This is verses 12 to 16. The deportation to Babylon was this thick black cloud. Right? The blessings of the family became royal in David and they were lost. The royal line was lost in Babylon. There was no king in Israel. There was no throne in Jerusalem. There was no temple. It was destroyed. Hope was lost. Israel was in darkness. They were outside the land, outside the promises of God, and they wondered if they could ever get it back. You feel that way? Like you forfeited something and you don't know if you could ever get it back? It's interesting that the deportation, which was such a long period of time, takes up such a short time here in this genealogy. There's just two lines. The end of the second set of 14 and then the beginning of that third set of 14 in verses 11 and 12. Why is that? Well, it's because after the people returned from the deportation in Babylon, they still felt like they were in exile. Okay, you can read the history. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, there are these glimmers of hope. There are these glimmers of celebration. But the constant theme, even after Israel comes back into the promised land, is, yeah, we're here, but it feels like God isn't. They struggled to obey even after those 70 years being deported. Even after they got back and they still struggled, they still didn't want to honor God in their lives. It says that they built the temple. When they rebuilt the temple, um, the young folks cheered, but the older folks wept because they knew that it was nothing like the first one that was built. And after the first temple was built, the, the very next thing that happened was that God's presence came down in a cloud and filled the temple. There is no such filling the second time around. And so Israel feels like though they're back in the land, they're still not back. They have no king. God's presence is not in their worship. They're still in exile. And it's interesting because if you read verses 12 to 15, you can see it reflected in the genealogy. Nothing happens. Right? Said the father of Seth, said the father of Seth, said the father of Seth, said the father. There's no disruption. Nothing is happening. Israel is still in exile. All the way up to the days of the first century, Israel was being occupied. 
during that time, they were being occupied and oppressed by Rome. They did have a king, King Herod. We'll meet him. He wasn't even Jewish. He wasn't out for Israel's interests. He had his own political agenda, his own financial agenda, his own sexual agenda that we'll find out. Israel was longing by this point for things to change. They've been waiting for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years for something to change. It's like they were saying, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. They were waiting for the King to come. Are you waiting? Do you know this longing? That no matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, it just feels like it's never, ever going to happen. Well, in verse 16, there is news. There is news, and it trips us up more so than anywhere else in the genealogy. In verse 16, it's number 13 in that third section. It says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Husband? Husband. That's the first. I mean, we saw the wife. The word husband is nowhere else in this genealogy. Right? The emphasis is usually on the men. Because they're the ones that pass down the legal right in a genealogy. And then you see after that, so you know something's up here. And then you look at the second line, it says, of whom Jesus was born. So, of whom Jesus was born is different than the other 39 times in this passage. It says, so-and-so was father of so-and-so. So-and-so, the father. So in the Greek, it's, it's actually a verb. Okay? In the Greek, it's Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah, and Judah begot you know, Perez. Okay? It's begot, 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 begot. And then, with Jesus, it says, Jesus was begotten. Passive, not active, for those of you English majors. Up to this point, you have fathers begetting their children. But when it comes to Jesus, he is begotten. Mary doesn't beget him. Jesus is begotten from Mary. Passive. We don't know what this means yet. Matthew's going to tell us in the very next section. But at this point, something special has happened with the birth of Jesus. And Matthew has carefully crafted this genealogy so that we would screech to all to go, huh? Beget, beget, begotten. 
if you do this with kids, kids, grandkids, just do it. Say begat, 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 and then say begat, and be like, huh? That's what Matthew wants us to do. He wants us to stop and go, wait a second, something's up here. Matthew's like, yeah, I know, just wait. Just wait. So we begin to see just a hint of it in the end of verse 16, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Who is called Christ. So here we have both the name and the title of Jesus. Jesus, the name Jesus means God saves. Okay, it means God saves. Yahweh saves. So, message from Matthew. If you need saving, Jesus is your man. If something's broken, if you feel like you're in exile, Jesus is a savior. Jesus was named because in Jesus, God will save. And he's called Christ. He's called Christ. Now, Christ is the Greek word for Messiah in, the, in Hebrew. You take the word Messiah in Hebrew and you write it in Greek, you write Christ. It's not his last name. It's a title. The Messiah, it means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, who was anointed? Prophets, priests, and kings. And in the Old Testament, they began to look forward and say, we're longing for a Messiah to come. Someone who is anointed with the Holy Spirit who can bring an end to all of this. Who can usher in and bring back the blessings of God and his kingdom. And Jesus is called the Christ. Matthew's making a bold statement here. To write this could get you killed by the other kings that were in power during that day. To believe this got you killed if the wrong person found out that you did. But in Christ, God's kingdom is going to be restored with even more glory. You see that Jesus is the completion of the old and the birth of the new. He's both the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of something new and the end of the old. And so Matthew takes a step back and he summarizes the story in a way that will hopefully drive the point home as clearly as he possibly can make it. Matthew's summary of the story has three points, right? You've got Abraham, David, and Babylon. Right, look at verse 17. The generations from Abraham to David were 14. From David, the deportation were 14. And the deportation of Babylon to the Christ were 14. So you have these three points. Into the confusion and the conflict of a separated and divided world, God called Abraham to bring his blessings. Into the turmoil of Israel living in the land in confusion and, and loss without a leader, God sent David to bless the land and to bring peace and now into the frustration of exile and oppression now into the frustration of your life God sends Jesus to set us free and restore us to a relationship with God this is what he's saying Abraham David and then Jesus 
three sets of 14 generations. Three sets of 14 generations. Hold on a second. 14 divided by 2 is 7. So three sets of 14 is six sets of seven generations. Do you know what that means? Jesus is the beginning of the seventh seven. Jesus is the beginning of the seventh seven. Jesus, and the number seven was the most powerful symbolic number in the whole Bible. To be born at the beginning of the seventh seven in a sequence is to be the climax of the entire list. It's, Matthew was saying that Jesus has come to bring what we've been longing for, hoping for, the culmination and the climax of God and his kingdom on earth. That's why he came. This is what Israel has been waiting for for 2,000 years. Where Israel failed, ended in exile, and needed a new exodus, Jesus comes to bring a new exodus in his life, death, and resurrection. That's the rest of the gospel. That's where it's going. Matthew is going to prove to you that Jesus is the seventh seven. And if you want to experience his kingdom, all you need to do is turn the direction of your life to follow him. If you trust him, if you turn the direction of your life and say, Jesus, what you want is more important to me than anything else, and I'm going to follow you. Oftentimes, turning involves saying, Jesus, I've been going the wrong way. Right? I'm repenting. I'm turning around, and I am going to follow you. Matthew is saying, if you do that, he's the one. He is the one who brings a new beginning. And so if you have dealt with abuse, pressure, if you've dealt with fears or worries I mean, anything, Jesus speaks, he comes, and he brings a new beginning. If you're willing to trust him, let's pray. Jesus, you are the culmination. When we think about you, you are everything that we want to be. You are everything that we aspire for and to. Jesus, you you blow our minds, especially those of us who know the rest of the story, the way that you have revealed yourself. Jesus, you are the son of David with the legal right to reign on his throne. You are the son of Abraham, inheritor of all of his promises. You bring them and make them true. Lord, help us to follow you. Help us, Lord, in our lives to turn the direction of our lives toward you. For Christians and for non-Christians here today, Jesus, would you speak to us? Put on our hearts. What are the areas where we need to turn? What are the areas where we just need to come to you and, and bring to you our fears, our brokenness from the past, 
the broken things that we deal with today. Lord, we lift those things up to you and ask that you would be for us a new beginning. Amen.